Baptism in and filling with the Holy Spirit. Um, So this is our discussion this morning. This controversy has been in the Protestant world for, oh, probably close to a century now. And the question is, what is baptism in the Holy Spirit? I want to explain first a traditional Pentecostal understanding that would be held by the Assemblies of God, the uh, Foursquare or the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel, and some other traditional Pentecostal groups, and a number of charismatic groups would also hold to this traditional understanding. It's not the view that I'm going to advocate in the end, but I want to explain what it is first so we see what we're talking about. And I'm going to say that some good results have come out of the traditional Pentecostal understanding, even though I think the understanding is incorrect in terms of how it uses the verses of the Bible and the terminology. So let's begin. The traditional Pentecostal understanding on baptism in the Holy Spirit, and this is the understanding that would have been promoted throughout the charismatic renewal movement in the 1960s as well. Many, many, many denominational movements and college movements. And the Pentecostal movement started in 1901, 1906. There were uh, Pentecostal revivals at uh, Topeka, Kansas, and Azusa Street uh, in uh, Los Angeles, and people began speaking in tongues. And the doctrine that came out of that was this. First, Jesus, number one, Jesus' disciples were born-again believers sometime before Pentecost, and certainly after his resurrection, weren't they? Okay, and I think you would probably agree they were born again before, uh, before Pentecost. And so at least at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Well, that certainly indicates that they were born again. Number two, Jesus nevertheless commanded these born-again believers, these disciples, to remain in Jerusalem, to receive new empowering for witness and for ministry. And we see this in Acts 1. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, if you have a New American Standard version, the footnote says, the Greek word here can be translated in, with, or by. And that's true, in, with, or by. And... My own personal opinion, I went back and looked. King James Version has baptized with water, baptized with the Holy Spirit. New King James has with. New American Standard has with. My work that I've worked on, English Standard Version, has with. New NIV has with. It looks like all translations have gone to with. The Greek word N-E-N plus the dative, you normally would translate it. Well, you, I mean, the, the sort of initial translation, if it works, is in. I-N. But why would translation committees not translate, even when you're talking about baptized in water, why would they not translate it baptized in water? Why would they translate it baptized with water? If you translate it baptized in water, what does it look like? It looks like immersion, like we do at Scottsdale Bible Church. If you translate it baptized with water, that can be just a little bit of sprinkling. And it could include infant baptism even, couldn't it? So the with is kind of a neutral compromise term 
that doesn't get into the baptism controversy. And these translation committees had lots of people on. Way back to the King James Version, they were all Episcopalians, all Church of England. And they all baptized infants. So everybody has gone to with. If I were doing it all by myself and I had a choice, I would go in on all these verses. Baptized in water, right? Get them all the way under. That's how real baptism, I think, occurs. But anyway, I'm, that's why I'm, one of the reasons I'm here at Scottsdale Bible Church. That's just a little P.S. That's, that didn't come with the price of tuition. That was just free, uh, <laughs> a free throwaway uh, here this morning. But uh, every, every, um, every Bible version, I think, in order to compromise on the question of whether it's immersion or sprinkling, they've all gone to with. It's kind of a, a compromise term, but it could mean in. Anyway, John baptized with or in water, but you will be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is after Jesus rose from the dead. He said, wait in Jerusalem. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what will happen? You will receive power. Power, dunamis, Greek, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you're to wait before they went out preaching with power. And on Pentecost, this happened. This is still the traditional Pentecostal teaching, but it's just basically reporting what I think is, in fact, true so far. This happened. The disciples were baptized in or with the Spirit subsequent to conversion. See, they were born again before this. They waited in Jerusalem. They waited, they waited, they were baptized in the Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues, Acts 2.4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And I think what was happening was these disciples began to speak in languages they hadn't learned. And the people from different countries and different dialects and different language backgrounds who were there were hearing. They were in Jerusalem, they were hearing them in their own language. It was a miracle. I think it was a miracle signifying that the gospel is going to all nations. Therefore, and this is the, the payoff for a traditional Pentecostal view, therefore, Christians today should ask Jesus for a baptism in the Holy Spirit and generally expect this baptism to be accompanied by speaking in tongues, just like it was for the disciples at Pentecost. So a traditional, if this were a traditional Pentecostal church, and I were the pastor, I would be saying, have, I know you're a believer, but have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Why don't we pray right now for you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and expect that there will be a new empowering for ministry and probably at least once you'll speak in tongues as an evidence that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So that's the... That's the kind of classic Pentecostal view. And millions upon millions upon millions of people around the world today hold that view. Additional support for that view is found, according to this argument, which I'm going to disagree with in a few minutes. <laughs> but, Joan, I want you to hear it first. This pattern is also seen in other passages in Acts. For instance, Acts 8, Philip went preaching at Samaria. They believed Philip. Okay, they were born again. He, he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. This is in Samaria. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria 
had received the word of God. See, that's north of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and Judea. They went north to Samaria. And there was Jews and Gentiles, mixed Jewish-Gentile background. I mean, they weren't really Jews. They weren't really Gentiles. They were kind of a mixed ethnic background, and they were disliked by the Jews and somewhat by the Gentiles, too. So the Samaritans were a little bit of an unusual case. When the apostles heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say they spoke in tongues, but Simon, the, uh, the, the magician who was there, saw something happening, and probably was. They were speaking in tongues or prophesying something that was evident. So there's another example. And then Acts 19.6 at Ephesus, Paul came to these disciples and talked to them about Jesus, and, but they were called disciples beforehand. He laid his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So it starts to look like there's a pattern. First, you're converted. Second, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you begin to speak in tongues. That's the, that's the traditional pattern. Maybe some of you have heard that uh, as well. But is this the correct understanding? I'm going to say there's something helpful in this, but there's something mistaken in it as well. And so that's where I want to go for the rest of the lesson, at least in my, in my view. We want to start out with what does baptism in or with the Holy Spirit mean in the New Testament? There are only seven passages in the New Testament where we read of someone being baptized in the Holy Spirit or with. Now, I'm using in and with kind of interchangeably. The Greek text is the same. The Greek construction is the same, but sometimes you get in or with uh, in talking about it. In the first four, now so there are going to be seven verses. Now here's the first four. The first four in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John the Baptist is speaking of Jesus. He predicts that Jesus will baptize people in the Holy Spirit. So John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, who's that? Jesus, is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there's one, and it's baptizo, the Greek word baptize, plus the word n-e-n, and then the dative case of spirit, pneuma, pneumati. Okay, there's Mar Matthew. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Luke, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, talking about Jesus. So those four don't help us a lot. They just say, John the Baptist predicts that Jesus will do this. But they don't really tell us what it is. That's four of the seven. What do the other three say? The next two passages refer directly to Pentecost. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. And he's predicting Pentecost. This is Acts 1-5. Pentecost comes. When the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost comes in Acts 2. So this is Acts 1. Jesus says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then you go on through Acts. Acts 2 is Pentecost, and then chapter after chapter. And then Acts 11, Peter is looking back at this. And he says, I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he's referring back to Jesus' prediction of Pentecost and saying something similar happened to Cornelius in Acts 10. So those six passages don't, 
The first four in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John say Jesus will do this. The two in Acts say it happened at Pentecost. They really haven't solved the definition problem of the seven passages. They haven't told us what really what it is. The only remaining reference, the seventh verse, is one in the New Testament. In the, it's in the Pauline epistles, and it's in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, <clears throat> and again, people can translate that with or by. The ESV translates it in. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, Paul's, who's Paul talking to? We were all. Who's he talking about there? What? Who's the we? It's Christians, generally. He's writing to the whole church at Corinth, where he's preached the gospel. Some Jewish believers, some Gentile believers. We were all what? Baptized in one spirit. We were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. All were made to drink of one spirit. And he's arguing that we're, we should be united in the church, one body. Now the question is whether this refers to the same activity that occurs in the other six verses. See, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you why it's a problem in just a second. Pentecostals have generally said that this verse is different. Something is being different, different is being discussed here. In the Gospels, it's baptism by Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it's baptism by the Spirit. So they make this a different case. This is essential to the Pentecostal view, to make this verse different. And the reason is because when you look at this verse, it looks like it's going to apply to what happens when you're born again. So they want to make so that essential to that argument is making this a different experience. One is baptism by Jesus after conversion. One is baptism by the Holy Spirit at conversion. But I didn't find that persuasive because the wording in Greek is the same as in the other passages. So I think it refers to the same event. Let's look at that. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. If you can see, now some of you, like Ben over there, no Greek, so they'll keep me honest. He will baptize you en, that's the Greek word that can mean in, with, or by, in, pneumati, hagio, in, spirit, holy, and fire, en plus the dative. He will baptize you en, pneumati, hagio, same Greek in Mark, en plus the dative of Holy Spirit. Luke, en plus the dative of Holy Spirit. John, n plus the dative of Holy Spirit. Baptized, all through the same. Acts 1, n plus the dative of Spirit, in the Spirit. And uh, Acts 11, 16, n plus the dative case of Spirit, pneumati. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13, n, same Greek. This is the word one, henny, one, in one Spirit, n plus the dative of Spirit. And there's baptized. So the wording in Greek is the same in these seven verses Therefore, I think the original readers of the New Testament would have seen 1 Corinthians 12, 13 as referring to the same thing as the other verses. They didn't have, oh, does it mean in or with or by? It was all N. It was all the same word to them, all the same construction. I think they would have thought that it meant the same thing. But now we go back to it. For uh, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The question is, when did this happen for the Corinthians. Think about that for a minute. 
When were they baptized in one spirit? When did it happen? Can you tell from this verse when it happened? John says no. Colin says no. No, Neville. Yeah, it says no. Sandy's son, what is it? Into one body, does that help? Okay. Joyce, it must be when they became Christians, because what's the body? The body of Christ, the church. So, if they were baptized into one body, that body is the body of Christ, the church. And that's the context of 1 Corinthians 12. You know, many members, one body, body of Christ, that's that passage. So, if they were baptized into one body, when do you become members of the body of Christ? Hmm? At conversion, okay. Neville, you okay with this? John? So, if... The baptism resulted in being part of one body. It sure looks like Paul is talking about the time when they were born again, when they became members of the body of Christ. Okay? You following? So it happened at conversion. What event is Paul talking about? He's talking about then what the Holy Spirit did at conversion. So, point B, one C, Roman numeral 4, I think baptism in the Holy Spirit refers to all that the Holy Spirit does at the beginning of our Christian life. He floods us, flows over us, makes us new people. And because of that, then I think if someone says, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I would say yes, when I became a Christian. Carol. <laughs> what does it mean, end with fire? <laughs> there were flames, tongues of fire, that appeared over the heads of the 120 at Pentecost. I think it was a, a physical symbol of God's purifying work. So fire has a purifying function. For, for unbelievers, it's judgment. For believers, fire purifies. And so I think it was a symbol of not only empowering, but also a cleansing, spiritual cleansing for them. Yeah. Okay. So then my conclusion from this verse is that... Baptism in the Holy Spirit, for us, happens at the time we're born again. But then what do you do with this stuff in Pentecost, in, in Acts? What do you do with the experience of the disciples? And, um, oh, I'll, 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 so just as the body has one, is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. In one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, all are made to drink of one spirit. Inclusion, baptism in the Holy Spirit refers to all the Holy Spirit does at the beginning of our Christian lives. But then, how do we understand the references to baptism in the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, 5, and 11, 6 that refer to Pentecost? I agree with point one of the Pentecostal position. The disciples were born again before Pentecost. 
They couldn't come to Jesus other than that, John 6, 44. Simon Peter in Matthew 16 replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he was born again then. Uh, that had been revealed by, the, uh, by God the Father. And what do I say then about John 20, 22? Well, I think where Jesus breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, I think it's, a, it's an acted out picture or prophecy of what is going to happen at Pentecost, just as in the verse 21 he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. But when did that happen? When did he send them out? When did they go out? When did they start going out? After they were empowered at Pentecost. And so he's talking about something that's going to happen several days hence, ten days later, and then when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, and I think he, he's giving a picture of what's going to happen ten days later. They receive the Holy Spirit from Jesus in heaven, sending it out. So I think it's an acted out prophecy of what would happen at Pentecost. But anyway, I agree that they were born again by that time, and that's, of course, the point. The day of Pentecost, however, I think is more than an individual event in the lives of Jesus' disciples and those with them. The day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the Old Covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so I think that a turning point in history, a hinge point in history, happened in Acts 2. And that's why their experience at Pentecost is sort of unique because now I couldn't figure out how to get my scanner to work last night. That was another problem. So I couldn't get this up here, but this diagram you have on the handout, I got the, the Xerox machine to work, that was fine. So do you see the diagram here where there's, on the left, this age, the old covenant experience of the Holy Spirit. This is all the way back in the Old Testament. There was some work of the Holy Spirit up to the time of the cross, and that, that low shaded line, do you see that kind of gray line? That shows kind of a work of the Holy Spirit. There was some work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, certainly. But at Pentecost that shaded line gets a lot thicker. Why? Because it's showing a new empowering of the Holy Spirit that comes at Pentecost to all believers. And so what were the differences? Well, number one, the gospel wasn't just to Jews anymore. It went to all nations. The nations weren't held in bondage to Satan anymore. But Norwegians even got to hear. <laughs> okay, Gentiles. And that's one difference, Old and New Covenant. Another one, demons were cast out. as beginning in Jesus' ministry because there was an anticipation, but then after that, in the New Covenant, no casting out of demons in the Old Testament. None, but very effectively in Jesus' ministry and then in the church as the apostles preach. And church grows. There is New Covenant power for victory over sin. I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, that I may know him in the power of his, his resurrection. This resurrection power, this Romans 6 power that we talked about in having victory from over the love, the ruling love and power of sin, I think that's something new for New Covenant believers. We're able to walk in more significant and consistent obedience than people in the Old Testament. I think that the spreading of gifts of the Holy Spirit to all believers 
as you see in 1 Corinthians, where everybody's gifted, everybody's ministering. It's not just the priests and the few people in the Old Testament. It's everybody having these giftings and everybody being a priest and able to come before God. There's a lot of difference in the power and work of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost for everybody. And that's why that line is thicker. And so though the new, we're still living in this age, there's still there's a greater influence of the age to come and the work of the Holy Spirit. So I think now that now Pentecost was the time when that started. And the disciples living at that time had a new empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so this is predicted in the Old Testament in Joel 2, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And you see, I'm going to go over some of these quickly. Uh, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The power that God worked in you raised Christ from the dead. Here's spiritual gifts for the common good in 1 Corinthians 12. Well then, what happened with these second experiences in Acts? I think what happened is, uh, first of all, in Acts uh, 8 in Samaria and Acts 19 in Ephesus, they don't call it baptism in the Holy Spirit. Acts 8 in Samaria, I think what happened is this. Philip went and preached to the Samaritans, but the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem weren't ready to accept Samaritans as equal members of the body of Christ. They probably would have been happy to have a Samaritan church that was kind of a second-class church all by itself, but not to accept them as full members. And I think God waited in his providence to give the new covenant empowering of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans directly through the hands of the apostles. So uh, when um, the apostles themselves come, was it Peter and John? Mm. Or was it Peter and, I think it was Peter and John. No, Acts 8. <laughs> Why don't I have this? Help, help. Acts 8. Peter and John, Acts 8.14, came down, who were, the, who were the cent, in the central group of apostles, and they came, and so the highest leadership in the Jerusalem church knew that the Samaritans were not second-class citizens, but full members of the church, because they received this baptism in the Holy Spirit. They began speaking in tongues. Peter said, hey, same thing happened to them as happened to us. Uh, they're equal Christians. So I think that explains that as a kind of unique event. And in Acts 19, I don't even think that these disciples had heard the gospel of salvation through Christ. So they're an unusual event. Um, Paul came to Ephesus, found some disciples. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. What were you baptized into? They were baptized into John's baptism. I think they had come to Jerusalem or had a visitor from, from, from uh, Palestine, from Jerusalem, and uh, they had heard about John the Baptist predicting that Jesus was going to come. They had heard John the Baptist's gospel, but they hadn't really heard that Jesus had died and risen again, and they hadn't heard about Pentecost, and they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So I think Paul preached the gospel of Jesus to them, and then they came into this Pentecost level of experience of the Holy Spirit in Acts 19. So I think they're kind of unique events. So what terms should we use? to refer to an empowering by the Holy Spirit that comes after conversion, because here's the problem. If I say that I think baptism in the Holy Spirit is what happens when you become a Christian, then I still haven't explained what happens to millions, and I mean multiple, multiple, hundreds of millions, perhaps, of people who claim that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit with great blessing coming to their lives. 
And when I read these church growth statistics coming out of the U.S. Center for World Mission in Pasadena, the graph of the number of born-again believers in the world has just skyrocketed since about 1950 or 1960s. It's just gone up like it's never gone up in history. So 3 or 4% of the world being born again for most of uh, you know, centuries past, and now it went to 5%, 6% of the world, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12% of the population of the world. What is the population of the world? Seven, 6 billion? 6.6 billion. What's 12% of that? 700 million? Something like that, born-again believers. And... And church growth people say that most of that growth is coming in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and most of it is coming in charismatic and Pentecostal groups. So how do I come and say, I think that what you're teaching about baptism in the Holy Spirit is not quite consistent with what the New Testament says. And they say, well, what happened to me? Because when I prayed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, there was this new empowering, and I've experienced some different spiritual gifts, many of them, I suppose, speaking in tongues. It seems to me to be a case of a genuine work of the Holy Spirit that is understood in what I think to be incorrect categories. So it's a case of a wrong label putting on something that is from God. And I think that the wrong label then leads to some harm. And the harm comes to the church from teaching two-class Christianity. And so now on the back, I have, you see on this chart, the first at the back of the page, uh, at the bottom I have non-Christians in dark gray. And then above the line is Christians, ordinary Christians in light gray, and spirit-baptized Christians in white. Do you see that? And there are two boxes, and the traditional Pentecostal view, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit, Alan? <laughs> that question would say, are you in category, the white category or the gray category? And you're either in one or the other. And no matter how much people who hold this view try to be humble and gracious and thoughtful, if you have this view in your mind, you can't help but thinking, it would be good for everybody to come into this higher level of spirit-baptized Christians. And it leads to some, some sense of superiority and some sense of jealousy, and it leads to division within churches. But I think it's this picture that's leading to the division. But before I give a different picture, I want to say that this historic Pentecostal view is not the only group that has taught what I call two-category Christianity. I've got some more examples here. Down at the bottom, the first one is non-Christians in the dark gray, ordinary Christians in the light gray, and spirit-filled Christians in the top, in the white. Another example, the bottom, non-Christians in dark gray, carnal Christians in light gray, and spiritual Christians in white. Okay, are you carnal or spiritual? If you get two two groups in mind, I think there's this divisiveness that can come. In another tradition that I, I appreciate very much, but I have a difference at this point, uh, that is the um, Wesleyan holiness tradition that comes to focus in the Nazarene church, for instance. Bottom, dark gray, non-Christians. Light gray, ordinary Christians. And white, sanctified Christians. 
That is, they would ask, have you been sanctified? And they would see it as a, a, definite, a definite second experience after conversion, where you enter into a new level of holiness. Or there's another one. Bottom would be dark gray non-Christians, light gray ordinary Christians, and the white would be disciples. Jamie, Pastor Jamie talked about that this morning. People thinking of disciples as a special category of Christians. He said, we're all disciples. Okay. And another one in the Roman Catholic tradition would be dark gray or non-Christians, light gray ordinary Christians, higher level priests, and then above that another a fourth level would be saints. And my response to all of those viewpoints is to put a big X over them and say, no, it doesn't look to me like the New Testament teaches that Christians can be divided into two categories like this. What I would rather say is that the New Testament teaches no such two-class Christianity. I would say there are many degrees of empowering and fellowship with God and personal Christian maturity. We can grow in all of these. And so a better diagram, this is left over from last week's sanctification outline, a better diagram would be this. The bottom is non-Christians down here. The middle is all Christians in this life who are growing in the Christian life. And, and the, only, the, the only other category at the top is after you die, then you're perfect holiness. But in this Christian life, I don't have two groups. What I have is younger, newer, less mature Christians, and I have older, more mature Christians who have grown. Okay, so now what do I think has happened in the Pentecostal movement? And what do I think happened to me freshman year in college when somebody taught me this traditional Pentecostal view and I prayed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? What happened was, and this is how it was told to me, and this is how it's been told many, many people, it's if you want to really experience something, a new, wonderful walk with God in your Christian life, first, confess all known sin, repent of it, yield your life completely to Christ, tell him you'll do whatever he wants you to do, you give your life over to him, Give up anything you've been holding back in terms of yielding to him and submitting to him. Believe that he will come upon you in new power and then ask him to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, what's going to happen if you confess all known sin? You completely go over every area of your life and you yield once again, commit yourself again to the Lord. You expect that he's going to work in you in a new and powerful way, and you ask him to do that. What's going to happen? Hmm? Sandy, he's going to do that. He's going to do something new in your life. And, you know, if you were at the first, at the first little stage of Christian growth here, and you did all that, you're going to jump up to this stage. It would be a big step of growth in your life, right? But I think the preparation accounts for a lot of the change. And then believing that God is going to do something new accounts for a lot of the change as well, because he honors that faith. But why is that different from the Pentecostal view? It's because if I was here and I moved to one, two, three, I moved three clicks up the sanctification ladder to here, 
does that mean that I'm in a better position in terms of Christian maturity than a, a deacon or an elder in my church who's never had an experience like this but has been slowly walking and growing with the Lord for 40, 50, 60 years and is all the way up here? You see what I'm saying? Even though he didn't have that experience, I'm here, I moved up and grew, but an older, mature Christian may be closer to the Lord than I am even after I grew. All I know is that I'm better off than I was before. Am I making sense? And there's something else that happened with the, the charismatic movement. There were charismatic renewal teachers in the Catholic Church, priests who were teaching baptism in the Holy Spirit, in the Episcopal Church, where there was a lot of liberalism, in Lutheran Church, in Methodist Church, a lot of liberalism. And these pastors would come in, say to, let's now not all Lutheran churches are liberal, but, but let's say it was a, a liberal Lutheran Church or a liberal Methodist Church, or a liberal, I'll use the Episcopalian Church, okay, because, well, I just will. <laughs> Okay, because there are Bible-believing kinds of ones of all those too. So, but let's say it was liberal, where people have never really heard the gospel, and the Episcopalian priest comes a special meeting on Wednesday night, and he says, "You know, I know you've all become, I know you're all Christians from the moment you were baptized as an infant. So you're all Christians, right? But you know, there's something more in the Christian life. It's baptism in the Holy Spirit, and you need to repent of all your known sins." and trust Jesus to forgive those sins, believe that he's going to hear you, commit your life completely to him, and then ask him to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. All right, all you Episcopalians, you ready to do that? And people pray. They sincerely repent of their sins. They believe that Jesus is going to forgive their sins. And they pray and ask Jesus to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? They're born again for the first time, says Sandy. I think where they haven't heard the gospel before, they move from here up to here, and they come back the next morning and say, wow, I read the Bible and it makes sense. I pray and God, it seems like God is very near. This is what, and I feel forgiven of my sins. This baptism in the Holy Spirit is wonderful. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but I wouldn't call it that. Well, now I guess I would call it that in that case. But, but, I, but I, I think, again, the result has come about through the things that came along with it. Hmm. And there was a difference. Well, what terms then should we use today to describe what happens to people? I would now call it a large step of growth or a new empowering for ministry, or I would call it probably being filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think that probably is the best term to use to describe genuine Christian second experiences today because it's frequently used in contexts that speak of Christian growth and ministry. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Greek imperative verb here is a present imperative, speaks of something that should be true throughout our lives as a habit of life. Be continually, frequently being filled with the Spirit. Mm. People can be filled with the Spirit more than once. I'll skip over that. But it doesn't always result in... Speaking in tongues, sometimes it's Elizabeth filled with praise, sometimes speaking the gospel with boldness, and some other things. I hurried through the end there because I'm about out of time, but I want to let you ask a couple of questions. Am I... Did that make sense? So, 
see, what I want to leave us with is saying, yes, there are experiences of the Holy Spirit to empower us in ministry and spiritual gifts that are subsequent to conversion, but I wouldn't call them baptism in the Holy Spirit. Okay? And they should be frequently true of us in our Christian life. Let's just take a couple of comments or questions. Uh, and here, go ahead. There's a microphone. Thank you. So did I miss it? Do you believe that people speak in tongues as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit? Um, some. <laughs> That's uh, chapter 53. <laughs> I, I attended a Pentecostal church for three years, yeah. and had I grew up Episcopalian. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. So it was quite a okay. uh, shock yeah. to my system to be in that kind of a congregation. Yeah. Yeah. But um, never experienced it myself. Yeah. People just... Dis- disagree on this question. I think that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament are valid for today, but but different people are given different gifts. And so um, I think some people do speak in tongues today, and it's genuine. Do some people speak in tongues where it's fake and it's not real? Yes, of course. Yeah, good. yeah, sure. But Okay, but I don't think it's a sign of being filled with the Spirit. I think it's a spiritual gift that God gives to some and not others. Not all speak with tongues, I think 1 Corinthians 12.30 says. Okay. But that's for a few weeks from now. Okay, another one right here. What's your name again? Rosemary. Rosemary. Is there a danger of the Spirit being the number one thing and forgetting about Jesus Christ as our Savior? Well, sure, but that hasn't been what I've seen to be true of charismatic and Pentecostal groups. There's a real love for Jesus. In most, in most cases. Now, can you point to some abuses that you've seen on TV? Sure, but, but are there responsible examples? Oh, yes, I think so. Yeah, Bob. I think you answered my question. I was wondering what Diane. people were saying when they were speaking in tongues and where that was coming from. Yeah. Let me wait for chapter 53. <laughs> I think it's, it's prayer and syllables that people don't understand. A lot of people have said that you need a prayer language. Is that all tied in together? Yeah, I can tell where we're going on this question and answer time, and this is what everybody's interested in. Um, I'm going to say my answer is going to be is going to be God gives different gifts to different people, and so um, I think it's a gift He gives to some people. Now, I a number of faculty members at Phoenix Seminary would be more reluctant to say that than I. So I just want to say there's a diversity in the Christian world. Okay, I tell you what, Trish, where are you? Trish, Eric and Trish, are you? Ah, she's hiding back there. Here's the hymn that you made. Look, Trish said she loved the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We hadn't sung that. If you have any other requests for hymns, let me know, but let's stand and sing What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Okay. Lord, we uh, now commit this time into your hands. Lord, I've gone fast through that material. I pray that there would not be misunderstanding and that I would not diminish anything that is in your word and that you'd fill our hearts with love for you and desire to serve you in all ways. And Lord, that you would empower us for the work that you've called us to. Amen.